Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life. Today we are joined by Abby Maslin, the best-selling author of Love You Hard, a memoir of marriage, brain injury, and reinventing love. Abby is also a special educator with a background in the healing arts, a certified movement therapist, and yoga teacher. In this interview, we talk to Abby about how her husband suffered traumatic brain injury after a vicious attack, the journey through his recovery, how faith is an active practice, and how she maintains her faith in herself, her marriage, and the world. Abby, we're so happy to have you here with us today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you. So let's just dive right in. I, For the, those listeners who haven't yet read your book yet, which go out and buy, do it now. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened in that August, three years after you were married? I know you were sitting in your yoga clothes wondering where your husband was. Yeah. Tell us what happened. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, in August, 2012, I had just turned 30. I was living this very kind of, I would describe it as an ordinary life. I was a a mom to an almost two-year-old. I'd been married for three years. Um, I was a full-time school teacher, woke up in the morning and discovered that my husband had never come home. And, you know, really discovered that that was the beginning of what would be just my ultimate nightmare. And at the same time, an incredibly new, unexpected chapter of life. Um, so what had happened, you know, and it, this would take weeks for me to fully get the details around, is that my husband, a really wonderful, responsible man, had been out at a Nationals baseball game the night before with some friends, was walking home and was assaulted with a baseball bat um, just a few blocks from our house. So that morning when I discovered he wasn't there, I called the police, filed a missing person report and discovered several hours later that he had been found on a neighbor's porch, unconscious, seizing, and had been taken to the local hospital to have brain surgery. Um, so just a complete, absolute shock, you know, a shock that I had never experienced anything like before. These stages, too, that you describe in the book, each one is like a whole nother moment that you're waiting. I mean, I I was telling Kelly this morning, I just cried through the whole book. So listeners, make sure you have a box of tissues as you go through, because I felt your panic. I was sitting there with you and I thought, you know, what anyone reading is going, what would I do? You know, and you immediately start to go into the same exact thoughts that you have. You think the worst and everything comes crashing into a tunnel, you know? Yeah, you go into denial for as long as you can. And then you hit a wall where all of a sudden every possibility, every terrible possibility is, you know, is right there in front of you and you can't get it out of your mind. Mm -hmm. So how did you eventually find out what happened to TC and what did that then set off? Because that set off a few months of years, really, for you guys. Right. right. So, I mean, it's kind of like this dual story that was unfolding at one time. So, on one hand, here's my like perfectly healthy, athletic, 
brilliant husband, just, you know, such an amazing, ambitious guy who now all of a sudden, um, through some kind of terrible event that I don't even know the details around, is now in a hospital bed fighting for his life um, with something called a traumatic brain injury, which is a term that I must have heard a dozen times in my life, but never really heard until the morning of August 18th, um, when it was suddenly my reality. Um, and the future was incredibly uncertain. I was told, you know, if he lives through the next 72 hours, then we'll talk about the future. And it was just these kind of like bite-sized pieces of information, you know, okay, he's, he's, you know, he's lived through 72 hours. Maybe he'll make it out of this. If he does make it out of this, you need to know that he's not going to be the same person. He's unlikely to ever walk again. He's unlikely to ever speak again. Um, he's, you know, very likely to have a different personality. So just kind of this, all these possibilities of what life could be like. And then this other story unfolding on the side about like how this happened. This happened because of the actions of three young men who, who went to rob him that night and, you know, left him fighting for his life. And, and the idea that a human could hurt another human like that, that was just, it was more than the brain could process at one time. Our, our minds are not meant to, to take in information like that. Well, and we're designed to figure things out. That's what our brain is doing all day long. You're you're hungry, you figure out what to eat. You're tired, you go to sleep. And now there's a crisis and all, all the mind wants to do is make sense of it. Right. And how, can, and how could you? Yeah. And it's interesting when I went to write Love You Hard and I started writing about those first few hours and those first few days, I, you know, it occurred to me that I was really writing about the experience as I experienced it on a body level. So as it felt um, physiologically to be in shock. And it makes sense to me now that I would describe it in those terms because I have this background as a movement therapist and I'm a yogi. Um, but shock, you know, so many of us think of it as just being an experience of the brain. Of the mar- and it, yeah. And it is this full body cellular experience. Um, you know, you go into this fight or flight mode and your entire nervous system is just going haywire. And it takes a long time. You know, I was in that place for almost two years. In fact, there was so much happening in my life that I was in this kind of constant chaos for two years and my body really suffered as a result. If that doesn't tell us that we're mind, body, spirit, I don't know what does. (laughs) Right, right. It's just the proof. Exactly. You talk about asking for prayers on Facebook that morning. What what made you do that? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, I would not have described myself as a religious person at that point in my life. And certainly growing up, um, I, I did not have a lot of religious background or teachings. Um, but I had this immediate memory that came to mind as I was driving to the hospital And it was of a movie that TC had forced me to watch in like our first year of dating. So it was like 22 (laughs) or 23 at the time. And it was, what the bleep do we know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there is this um, part where they talk about kind of the collective unconsciousness and this idea of energy having um, having action, you know, around it that, you know, energy creates thoughts and thoughts create action. And I was like just drawn immediately to this idea that if everybody thought energetically about TC, if they could focus their thoughts on his healing, that not only did we need it, like 
his recovery, his survival was going to be dependent on those thoughts, um, but that something really powerful was possible. And I just immediately asked people to pray. It was just so instinctual. It surprised me. Yeah. Were you raised in a particularly religious family or faith? No, you know, my dad was Catholic through and through, went to all boys Catholic schools through his PhD even. Um, And then when he married my mom, who was a self-proclaimed atheist after being in the Mennonite church, um, he kind of abandoned his religious upbringing as well. So I didn't go to church as a kid. We weren't really having spiritual conversations at home either. You say in the first third of the book, I think it's in chapter seven, that you can you consider yourself a person of faith, although you've never had any strong evidence to support that claim. And I think we've all done this. You know, we have conversations with what we might imagine to be someone looking over us when we're desperate, like, please help me. You know, we get to those places. And did how did that change? Yeah, I mean, I think I always believed in something bigger than myself, but I struggled to name that. I struggled to name it now, but I struggle to name it now because I, I'm not trying to name it with certainty. I think mm-hmm. I, I try to stay humble about what this could be, but I just really, you know, my gut tells me that it's all of us together. And that's the thing I believe in. You know, it is this idea of our collective power as, as people. That thread of divinity that yeah. kind of weaves through all of us. The yoga yeah. definition. Yeah. So, th- so then how does that play into or how did that play into um, the assaulters in your mind? Like if we're all connected, that has to enter into your mind. I know you talk a little bit about forgiveness, but how does that fit? Well, it was so inconvenient, right? To be a person who believes truly that we are all the same on some very very essential level. And then to have this anger that I didn't know what to do with because, Mm -hmm. you know, I could direct it at these young men, but I was a school teacher. I knew young men like this. I, I had gotten too up close to people to be able to say that's an enemy. I couldn't think like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was no convenient way to make sense of it other than to accept it. And, you know, I had a lot of people telling me how to forgive or maybe don't forgive. You know, there was a lot of people, there were a lot of people in my life with a lot of rage about the situation. And, you know, I really, I just had to look at this idea of forgiveness and say, I don't care what it means for anybody else. My definition of this is that um, my forgiveness is my choice to keep living. And I can live in acceptance of what's happened and I can live without, you know, deep anger at individuals. I, I you know, the, their actions are inexcusable, but they are still human beings. So how did you do that? You made a mental choice? Yeah. And not at first, you know, it, it, that took a while to get to that place. But I couldn't live in my own soul, you know, with that kind of anger. I, these young men have families too. And I was Mm -hmm. in a yoga workshop yesterday with a young woman whose brother is in prison. And I just, you know, looked into her eyes and saw the way that it was, you know, it was hurting her soul. I knew that there was no form of justice, you know, legal justice that was going to give anyone peace that the only way to create peace around this was to be at peace with it myself. And, mm-hmm. and then that energy was going to, you know, do what it, what it would do to others. Um, 
but I, you know, both TC and I you know, feel the exact same way when it comes to the assault itself and to the assailants. Um, you know, and, and so that's a really beautiful thing to be in partnership with somebody who has that same perspective, but we just choose to keep living. So I'm going to ask a pretty big question because you study yoga and you've done a training and you were just in a class and you, you, I'm imagining this philosophy is part of your, you've accepted the philosophy of yoga for the most part. We talk about things like karma and dharma and one essential classical teaching of yoga is that everything that's happening is necessary for us to kind of, you know, arrive at our greatest potential and everything that's happening or that has to happen will have to happen in order to reshape our life and redirect our life. Are you at a place now where you can say seven years later or whatever it might be, that injury was necessary, that that moment was necessary in time for XYZ to happen? You should see me nodding vigorously over here. You know, it was, it was I can never speak for TC on this. It's cost him so much. Um, of course. So I, I, you know, I hesitate in, in the language that I use to describe it. But for me, yes, it was a necessary chapter in feeling the urgency of life and in thinking about my potential as a human being and the work that I want to do on this planet and who I want to be of service to. Absolutely. You know, I, it would be really convenient for me to say, oh, I was this wicked person before I only cared about myself and this woke me up to everything. But, you know, I was a nice person just living my life before, you know, and, and I think I could have stayed on that path and I'm sure mm-hmm. that path would have worked out fine. But the path I'm on now feels so much bigger and it feels so much more essential and my world feels bigger. I think I had made some very deliberate decisions before to try to keep my world small because mm-hmm. I was scared of my own potential. I was terrified to find out what I might be able to do in life. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel that way anymore. Now I feel like, oh my gosh, I got to wake up today. So what a gift that is. And now I get to figure out what I'm going to do with these hours that I've been given. It was a catalyst for you. Yeah, absolutely. It was a real kick in the butt that I needed in order to step up and live my own life. You talk about your depression through all of this. And I would think you're very positive about it all right now, right? Talking to us (laughs) several years later, but you had to go through anger, anger with TC and anger at the assailants and depression. And you talk very honestly about trying but not sticking with antidepressants. So what pulled you through this, the depression, the anger, the the hard part? Yeah. I mean, I had a very real, very dark period where you know, we were six months into this injury. TC was walking at that point, but he couldn't communicate with me in any meaningful way. Um, my dad was very sick and cognitively not present. And my mom had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. So I'm living this, and I'm, and I'm raising a two-year-old who's still learning to speak, right? So oh I'm just incredibly lonely at that moment. Um, there's no one to talk to. There is no one to get inside my head. No, and I don't feel understood and I don't feel seen. And, and that leads to like just the, the darkest moment I've ever experienced, which I wanted to be really transparent about in the book because friends who read this part of the book came up to me and said, that was really hard to read because we had no idea. Well, they knew, but they didn't want to know, you know, mm-hmm. and that's how it is with suffering. We have a hard time getting up close to it, you know, because when we do that, we accept that, we have to share it. Um, and that 
we are likely to be in a period of that ourselves, you know, that that's going to be universal. Um, so I wanted to be honest about it because I think that that's an experience a lot of people can relate to, whether they're caregivers or not. It's just the depression that comes from being so isolated and so lonely. Um, and what got me through it, you know, what got me through it was learning to breathe. And, and that was, you know, my breath work was an essential part of working through the trauma, working through the shock and just getting moment to moment through the experience and also my son, who, you know, was two years old and this kind of vivacious personality. And he was this present reminder that, that there is joy and there is light in the world and that I can choose it. Um, and that just because my circumstances from the outside would make it appear that, you know, there's no choice other than misery, there is still an alternative, but I have to seek it out. It's not going to just you know, it's not going to just come to me, um, which was empowering, you know? It was and I think that's the thing about depression. You, in that moment, it doesn't seem like there's a choice or to choose something else. Right. And, and I am all for antidepressants and I'm all for therapy. I am all for all the things that work. You know, what I knew for myself is that my circumstances were not going to change. So mm-hmm. I was going to have to change. You know, I had learned so much about the brain and how it works, but spent so many months thinking that everything I had learned about neuroplasticity and, you know, the brain's ability to change itself only applied to TC because he was the one with the brain injury. And then I sort of had this moment where I was like, oh, wait, I have a brain too. That means, <laughs> that means I can do the same work. I have the potential here to become a new person, to see the world differently, but I'm going to have to train myself how to do this. What a so how teaching. do you, yeah. Wow. yeah how do you do that though how do you train yourself to see the world in a different way I mean yoga certainly helped because you know reading the sutras going to my 200 hour training it was the first time I felt like I was in a community of people who had the same core beliefs the same kind of aspirational hopes for the for the universe right and that daily movement that practice of just being in my body again um, that was so essential for me. I had just cut my body off completely. Um, I was trying to harden myself so I could get through whatever, you know, the next hardship would be. Um, but that vigorous movement practice and then, and then the sitting still in the meditation was just this, it was just this reconnection with my body that I, I, it really allowed me to open up some pathways in my brain that I had shut off. Um, and to try to re-envision things. Was there, go ahead, sorry. (laughs) I was just going to say, was there a distinct moment, Abby, when you thought to yourself, I have to leave, I'm going to go and do this training or like, that's, there are sort of moments that we have to make a very radical, I think, kind of action or shift. And what was that for you if there was one? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We have so much inner wisdom, right? And Mm -hmm. we don't trust ourselves. I had just entered like, in a Google search, something like yoga. And I, I don't even know what I put retreat, something like that. And ended up on this webpage for um, a training uh, in Santorini. And instinctively, I just knew because TC and I had dreamed about going to Santorini together. That was, that was our hope. And I knew I had to go far away. I knew uh-huh. I needed to be away. Um, I also knew that I was at that place where my hardening that I was doing was going to become, it was going to become a shell if I didn't undo it real, real soon. 
Um, and I, I just listened to that inner wisdom. I let it guide me there. Um, and I tried to do that without guilt, which was difficult because I had mm. a, a three-year-old son at the time and I signed up to go away for a month, but I have never been the same. You know, I remember leaving on my last day in Santorini and my teacher said to me, what you're going to experience is, you know, you, you think you understand now what this has done for you, but you're going to experience this in ways you can't imagine for time to come. And it has been so true. I, I just mm-hmm. came back more patient, um, more willing to get creative in my thinking, just more accepting of who TC was. I kept trying to change him. Um, I kept trying to change everything. And I needed to just sit and appreciate the beauty of, of what gifts I had in my life. I know in my experience, I've only really been able to develop real gratitude after loss. I know. It's not, I, I just try to think. I hate like, it, but it's I know, true. I want there to be a way around that where like, because you, you, anybody who suffered never wants anybody else to suffer. You know, it's like, God, I just want you to be on the fast path to enlightenment. And you don't have to go. Yeah, I think it's the only the way. I think it might be the only way. Um, I think it's the teaching. Yeah. Right, and that's, and that's the gift. Like to you know, people ask how our lives are now and we're living a life that's very similar, you know, in many ways to what it was before. TC has miraculously gotten back so much speech and he's gone back to work and we have another baby and we live in DC and it's, it's a beautiful life. But the difference is I know it now. I know every day how lucky I am. What, what a magical gift it is to be able to drive from point A to point B without dying. I mean, just these things that we don't think that we about. take for granted. Right, Absolutely. Right. I see it all around and sometimes it feels so big and so profound. I don't even know. I don't even know how to look at it and how to think about it, except that it's just, it's, I love to marvel at it. I just love to marvel at this human life. It's kind of amazing that you guys are still together because you really did question your marriage so much through this. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, I, I was one of these kind of like marriage junkies at like 24. I started having friends who were getting married and I was watching a lot of TLC and I was like obsessed with the bridezillas and the say yes to the dress. And I just channeled all my mental energy into the idea that if I found the right partner and had the right party, maybe I wouldn't have to um, question all of that stuff about my inner potential and what I want to do on the planet. You know, all that important service work that I now, you know, spend all my time thinking about. So I channeled it into a relationship. And fortunately, I had found this incredible man who really brought out the best of me in so many ways and who I admired in so many ways. Um, but what I kind of came to believe, you know, just taking in our culture and all the messages we, we receive about love is that, you know, one person is responsible for our happiness, you know, that there, you have to find that exact right person who can make you happy and understand your needs and intuitively get everything about you. And that is a bunch of BS. Um, and that was a damaging bill of goods to be sold because after TC was injured and he could not be himself, cognitively, he was just trying to piece himself back together every day. I was the last person he was worried about most of the time. You know, he was just worried about, you know, getting out of his wheelchair and learning how to say his name again. What I realized is that I had a responsibility to make myself happy. I had a responsibility to find love from lots of relationships and from lots of passions and from and from lots of hobbies and not ask one person to be the everything for me. And once I stopped asking him to be that 
and started to fill my life from all these different buckets, I felt filled in a way that I'd never felt filled before. And I was also able to look at TC and accept him as a human um, with all of the things that he can give me and all of the things that are hard for him to give me. Um, But I'm not asking him to be my everything anymore. I'm asking myself to be that. I think that's a very Western idea. I don't think that's a very Eastern idea, actually, that there's going to be this one person that fulfills things. I mean, look at some, look at some cultures with arranged marriages. It's not even a question that you, it would be that person. That's just a, a partner fulfilling a certain, you know, role in a very different way than we seek out partners, I think. In and it's America, a modern, in it's very a modern. modern Western viewpoint, oh, too, of marriage. Yeah. And this whole thing about like, you know, loving somebody versus being in love. We just like, we go haywire over this, right? Like, you know, and and marriage is hard. Long-term partnerships are hard no matter what happens, brain injury or no brain injury. You get to a point where you're like, what does in love mean again? And I can't remember. Um, And if you don't feel that kind of like, you know, hormonal, like rush every time you, you wake up next to them, you start to wonder, are we doing it wrong? Is this right? And the reality is that's relationships change when you sign up for partnership or marriage, you're signing up for evolution. So I find people who choose marriage to be great risk takers, um, to be among the bravest because you really are signing up for change and not everybody is comfortable with change. Now we're going to take a quick break from our chat with Abby to give a shout out to our show partners. Shimbala Publications is the proud publisher of our book, Living the Sutras, A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat, and the forthcoming pocket library edition of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. As a listener of our show, you get 30% off your purchase with code ISHWARA30 at Shimbala.com. That's I-S-H-V-A-R-A 30 all caps on Ishwara. Support for Living It is also brought to you by Alchemy Forever, a clean and clinical skincare line developed by Switzerland's top dermatologist. The products are anti-aging, paraben-free, gluten-free, cruelty-free, and ideal for all skin types. Use the code SUTRA20, all caps again on SUTRA, to get 20% off your Alchemy Forever products at alchemy-forever.com. And now back to our conversation with Abby. I'm going to quote from page 186. You say, can I bury my attachment to the old TC in order to find love with the new one? Right after you say, my love for TC is where I must invest my faith. You know, and that's, we're really interested in talking to you today about faith in Ishwari Pranidana because certain things are going to test it. And you, you make the statement to yourself that it's your love for him that you must invest your faith. And him, my love for him and him. I, mm-hmm. I didn't trust that this world could handle a human like TC who would be different. You know, I, we were living in a very ambitious, ego driven city where people can be impatient <laughs> and, you know, career is everything. And all of a sudden we don't fit in this box anymore. And mm-hmm. I was spending so much of my mental energy worrying about how other people were going to perceive us instead of looking at this man who was doing the most incredible thing I'd ever, you know, witnessed in my life. I would watch him do the dishes at night with one hand and and do leg lifts while he was doing the dishes because he needed to strengthen his muscles again. I was watching these tiny moments of just absolute, you know, incredible tenacity. And 
for a while, it became hard to see the beauty in that. But what I needed to learn how to do was to stop asking him to be the person he was and to look at this new person and see the value and, and, and the absolute, you know, tremendous beauty and strength in, in what he was accomplishing, you know. And I had this idea that strength is, you know, the people who make it look easy. And no, it, none of this looked easy. But strength is the struggle. It's, it's getting through the struggle. It is not falling, you know, victim to the idea that you, you, you can't survive it. It's the continuing to try. I think so often we think of faith as this passive thing, but what you're saying is that it's this very active thing, this thing that you have to choose to do every day. Is that yeah? Is that absolutely, right? Absolutely, and I think it's not just one kind of faith. So it's faith in it's faith in humans. It's faith in ourselves. I had so much doubt that I could be, you know, I could be in this journey 10 years from now that I, you know, you know, here we are on the eve of our seventh anniversary of this brain injury. I doubted that I would make it this long. I wasn't looking back at my own life to say, Abby, look at all the times that you persevered. Look at all the times that you showed strength of character. Um, I needed to have faith in myself. So it was, you know, it was a lot of different types of faith. And of course, this this greater faith about the human connection um, that has saved me, that has satiated my soul in a way that I never imagined before. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that you're, you get to be doing this service work. I'm curious to, to hear a little bit about what that's all about. Yeah, well, you know, I get to do it daily in my role as a special educator. I work for D.C. public schools and um it's an honor to work with children every day. Um, and my work as a teacher is so different now than it used to be in, in terms of how I think about it. I'm looking at these mm. young people and before I was kind of reading from a book and saying they need to learn fractions and they need to learn, you know, vocabulary words and all of this. Now I'm looking at them saying I need to teach them emotional resilience because no matter what happens, this is the gift I can give them. Um, and I can do that by not just showing them my perfect self, but by showing them my full self, by, by telling them about my own struggle and, and telling them about the ways that I, you know, set goals for myself and sometimes fail and sometimes achieve and the ability of my own brain to, to learn new tricks because theirs can too. Um, so that's my kind of daily work. And then, of course, you know, I've got this wonderful caregiving community that I'm also part of where, um, I'm doing a lot of work with families who are in this struggle themselves at the beginning of it and, and trying to figure out how to navigate their own path to healing. So this trauma recovery mm. work is so important to me. And I, I think yoga is such an essential part of that work. Are you using yoga in a formal way in those uh, settings? You know, my dream for 2020 is to be doing a retreat for, for caregivers, um, that will involve some trauma sensitive yoga work. Um, right now with the book and my full time teaching job, it's been hard to, to be part of that practice as much as I want to. But, um, you know, I've, I had some incredible trauma based teachers that I've worked with over the past few years and, this kind of um, ability to bring science and physiology into the work of yoga. I mean, it's so powerful. I, I think it's really interesting that you say showing the kids your full self is part of teaching them emotional resilience. And it's this idea about being more truthful and honest with who we are, which is interesting because when you and I first started talking about having you on the podcast, we talked about having you on for our episode on Satya. So, Talk to us a little bit about that. What 
What did you learn about truthfulness and honesty through this whole process? You know, I think the the underlying lesson that I learned and that I carry with me every day is that when we are not living in our truth, you know, we're out of alignment and that makes us sick and that, you know, it manifests in all these different ways, but we are not meant to live out of our place of truth. And sometimes the truth is terrifying. You know, I was so scared when I went to my yoga training and I, and I went at a time where my marriage was very fraught and I was like, I might go and I might decide that I'm going to exit this marriage. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be terrifying. Everybody will hate me. Everybody will think I'm the worst person. Um, I may land there. But oh my gosh, if that's the thing I have to do, I have to do it. There is no choice. I can't live. Um, I can't live in this place of inauthenticity. I just, I, it will kill me. And I have a responsibility to live my life to its fullest. And, and I know that. I know the urgency. Um, so, you know, truthfulness for me is such an important practice. It is so hard to be truthful, you know, with our, with the people we love most. And this is so interesting to me because I love working with strangers and I love working with caregivers, but the hardest practice is living with my family and living in a place of openness and vulnerability and honesty with those people. Um, it is, you know, it is not sexy. It is, you know, sometimes really messy and you just feel exposed. But these are the people with whom we owe our very best. You know, these are the people we signed up to do life with. Um, so for me, that practice is it's like a radical intimacy, really. Would you say TC has had to make that kind of a leap for himself or do you think he was already there? We're, no, he's, you know, he's changing all the time. And and I think one interesting change has been that our personalities have really kind of reversed. <laughs> I had to spend so much time thinking like him as I was making these day-to-day decisions that I really became him to him. an extent. <laughs> and he's always looking at me now like, wow, you're interested in all these things you, you, know, you weren't that interested in before. And now you're so curious and you want to accomplish all these things. And he's like, I'm happy to sit in the presence of our family. And I'm happy to find a sense of joy and identity in my parenting and in my marriage to you. So he kind of operates from this very, you know, Buddha-like, I'm just going to sit in my glory and and, and experience life this way. Um, but what we're finding is that, you know, marriage, again, it's just, it's a really difficult partnership. Um, any long-term, you know, relationship is. Mm-hmm. So the way we can stay truthful with each other is going to demand different things from one another as we keep traveling this journey together. Um, and with two young kids, you know, it is so easy to become distant, even when you are in a house where everybody is together all the time. But part of the way that we reconnect to each other is by that kind of just absolute honesty about our needs. This idea that, again, that, that, that somebody who loves you should understand intuitively what you need. That's just, unfortunately, I wish that were the reality, but it's not. (laughs) And so for me, this practice has been really about telling him what I need. And that's scary, right? Because what if we, what if the person says no? What if we don't get it? Um, But we have to ask, we have to advocate for ourselves. You talk a lot in the book about having trouble asking for help or accepting it. But what you're talking about with being honest with TC is saying, this is what I need. 
Um, so how did you make that shift to having trouble doing that to doing it? <laughs> it's still hard. Let me say that right away. It's still really hard. Um, in the workshop I was in yesterday with um, Jen Pasteloff, who's a yogi and a memoirist, we were we were thinking a lot about the mantra, I am worthy of receiving. Um, and that has been really hard for me. Um, at the beginning, I wanted to prove that I could navigate this insane situation with TC and the criminal trials and having a two-year-old and I could do it all myself. And um, it was just, it was a facade. I really absolutely could not. I had to learn how to let people see me um, falter and, and suffer and, you know, and really know me. And that, that's scary. But, you know, the fact that I chose to write about it and that I chose to write about it so publicly, I, I, I sort of forced myself into this scary thing. And I try to do this every day. I try to do something that absolutely terrifies me. And, and usually it's being honest. <laughs> um, but I think the fact that my students, you know, my friends, everybody knows that we've been through this ordeal. And now there's this book where you really get the inner, you know, story of, of the transformation. Um, I don't ever have to pretend to be somebody I'm not. So I've probably gotten far away from what the question was, but just this sense of, of just living again in alignment with who you are. So what is it like for strangers to know you so intimately if, if they do on some level? <laughs> it's interesting, right? Because, you know, there are some things in the book people were like, I can't believe you wrote about that, you know, intimate things. Um, and the only thing that made me nervous about writing so honestly is this idea that I am a teacher, that the parents on the playground the next day are going to look at me and be like, oh, my gosh, did you hear about that? Um, but we are all just human beings. And I kept coming back to this idea of like, you know, yes, I've had a very dark chapter that I've lived through, I may, you know, certainly have future dark chapters. If I think I am any different than the human being next to me, I'm not. We are all the same. And in telling our stories, we liberate each other from that feeling of isolation. And again, that feeling of isolation is what really led to my depression, um, that this has to be a liberation, that stories really, really have to serve a purpose for each other. And, and they allow us to see each other's humanity. And once we can see each other's humanity, we are, there are no strangers anymore. We cannot, again, look at people as if they're any different, as if they might be our enemies. We know that we are all in this together. It's almost as if that honesty and truthfulness and being our authentic selves helps all of us have faith. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a beautiful way of saying it, that we can't, yeah, that that kind of, trust, right? Because that's really, it's about trust, creates faith and really allows us to receive help from one another and to live in community. So Abby, the subtitle of Living the Sutras is a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat, as you know. <laughs> and what we wanted to do is really make that wisdom personal and relevant and tangible. So what off the mat practice really helps you keep your faith in yourself, in TC, in the world, whatever that may look it's like? It's really a practice of gratitude for me. Um, it's a practice of daily, you know, I have a journal. I try to get to it daily um, of naming the two or three things that either I've accomplished, I can give myself some credit for, 
or that I am just observing, you know, um, that, that I am bearing witness to again, like the hot cup of coffee, the drive from point A to point B, those small things, um, it's hard to be angry. It's hard to get stuck, mentally stuck in a world where you feel grateful. Um, and so I think that practice is my most practical advice. You talk about softening, right? And I, that's what I think of gratitude does. I think when I practice it, I, that's what softens me for sure. Yeah. And I love that word soften because I, I really had to soften into life again. I had, I, again, I use that word hardened because you go through these trials and you think the only way out is just to build armor. And really the only way to live is to live openly. Um, and I, I think that's what allows us to deal with the fear and uncertainty of just being a human on this planet. So you use the word hard in your title, which is very curious. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way. That's true. So the title is funny. It comes from something TC told me um, a few months into this experience, he has um, a a communication disorder called uh, aphasia. Mm -hmm. And so he struggles with both expressive and receptive language. So he looked at me one night and he said, I love you so hard. And I know he meant much, but I was like, nailed it. You just, you nailed it in a way that is so much more precise because yes, this, this love is supposed to be hard. It isn't. It was never supposed to be easy. Yeah. Yep. Abby, thank you so much for joining us today. This was absolutely delightful. And tell our readers where they can find you, where you're, if you're giving talks and all the things. So you can go to my website. It's abbymaslin.com or loveyouhard.com. And I am on Instagram more than I ought to be. (laughs) (laughs) Abby underscore Maslin. Um, I have a couple of events and speeches coming up in late summer and in the fall. Um, And you can find the book wherever books are sold. So um, I hope you'll consider buying from your independent bookstore, your local store. I'm so grateful for this conversation. I have to tell you. I, I'm so. I, I feel so uplifted. I'm smiling the whole time. You you might be nodding your head. I'm smiling yeah, the whole time. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Abby. You're so welcome. Thank you for listening to Living It. For those of you who want to find out about Abby and where she's speaking, visit loveyouhard.com. You can find links to this, as well as more information about the resources we discussed in this episode, in the show notes or at our website, livingitpodcast.com. Amy and I are working on a Living It card deck that expands on the book with even more tangible practices. To find out more about the deck's release, where we're teaching, or season three of the podcast, sign up for our newsletter at livingitpodcast.com. And remember, listeners get 30% off at Shambhala with the code ISHWARA30. And you also get 20% off at Alchemy Forever with Sutra20. Thank you so much for tuning in to Season 2 of the podcast. We're so excited to keep doing this. We've got great plans for Season 3, so please share this with your friends. Message us on Instagram at Kelly DiNardo and at Amy Pierce Hayden. Email us through our website, livingitpodcast.com. Subscribe in iTunes, write a review, all of the things. We love hearing from you. We love doing this, so please help us continue to keep the podcast going. Thanks for listening.